Hello and welcome to Pod Rocket. I'm Brendan, Director of Engineering here at LogRocket, and joining me today is Andrew Beyer, Senior Engineering Manager at One Password. Andrew, welcome. It's great to have you on the pod. Hey, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. It's uh, really exciting. I did not know about this uh, podcast until I got reached out to, and then I've been listening to some of the back catalog, and it's become one of my favorite tech podcasts, so super excited to be here. Great. Well, we're excited to, to add another great episode to that list. Um, so I, I think a lot of people are probably already familiar with, with 1Password, especially with all of the sort of fundraising and, and publicity you guys have done recently. But for anyone who isn't, can you tell us a little bit about what 1Password is and, and what you do there? Uh, yeah, so I'll start with what 1Password is. It's actually kind of like a hard question, it feels like these days. I was just previous, kind of before I came on this interview, I was talking to one of the founders and he was like, I hate answering that question because I think it's it gets complicated, right? Um, so like the elevator pitch has changed a lot during our journey. Um, for consumers, I like to say 1Password is kind of the easiest way for you and your family to kind of generate unique passwords, store them, and then use them. Um, oftentimes you have to go into why is it important to have unique passwords between web services? Well, there's this little thing about web services getting hacked and if they can get your passwords or crack those hash tables and get your passwords and then next thing you know, you're using the same password at your bank account or your email. Oh, they can just, they kind of unlocks the keys to your digital life, right? And so it is very important that folks use um, unique passwords, especially online. And 1Password at its start really is just tried to make that easier. Um, we, you know, once you get your passwords into 1Password, I think we also make it easier to use these long and unique passwords by making it easy to fill online or fill within apps on, say, your iPhone, for example. Um, but in reality, 1Password, I think, can do a lot more than passwords, right? Uh, it's, it's really the best place, in my opinion, to um, digitize and securely store everything in your life. So I recently got married and, and had a kid. So we have, you know, our wedding license and birth certificate scanned in in 1Password end-to-end -end encrypted. It's the place that I feel safe to have important documentation like that, have copies of driver's license, passwords. Um, one of the use cases that I always find interesting to share is every holiday we get some amount of gift cards, right? So I put those into one password and share them with my wife so that, you know, we don't have to worry about this plastic hunk of thing. And, and we both know like, how much money do we have at Target to spend or whatever? So this is great. Um, I'm taking notes. Yeah, there's a lot of like power user features, right? Um, for businesses, it's really the same for your for your users at the business. It's the same concept, you know. Um, but we've made it easier to share with larger groups. Um, the big example I like to use there is almost every business nowadays has a social media team, right? And uh, they need the ability to access the Twitter account or whatever. Uh, platforms you might be on. So you can have a social media vault that you share with a select set of users and you don't give that that uh, that password to everyone. Uh, I think one of the big hacks was Sony and they just had kind of like an Excel spreadsheet or something like that with their Twitter password. So right when they got hacked, next thing you know, their Twitter account's hacked, right? So it's, it's just kind of, it escalates out from there. But we also add a bunch of like advanced reporting so that your organization can actually quantify, you know, their security posture, as well as 
Um, a big one is when someone leaves your organization, what credentials do they have access to? What do you need to change? Um, I don't remember the report, but it's it's an outstanding, uh, you know, the, a survey was run about, you know, you've left a company, what access do you still have? And you'd be surprised what people can still access, networks, VPNs, uh, servers directly. It's just wild, right? And so we sprinkle on a lot of extra features for businesses, you know, additional security via firewall, enforcing 2FA and stuff like that. And then we've also started to platform uh, a ties some of it. So for example, we have uh, secrets automation. So your DevOps team can start using secrets in one password in production server environments, like on your Kubernetes cluster and that kind of thing. So it's, uh, it's like I said, kind of a hard question to answer, I feel like. Uh, but I think that's a, a fairly good overview of what one password is today. Um, as for my role, I've been here for five years. Um, pretty interesting story. When I joined we were about 50 employees and everyone was like, holy cow, it's getting so big. You know, we just doubled in size. Um, as of today, like I just hit my five-year mark. And as of today, we're at 738 employees. So it's pretty huge growth there. Um, I'm essentially in charge of, it's awesome to be on a web development uh, podcast because I'm in charge of our web extensions, saving and filling items on the web, kind of like a core functionality of a password manager is like, how well can you get information in and out of said password manager? Um, and then also we've been doing some pretty cool service integration stuff uh, on my team. So for example, uh, for any fans of Fastmail or Privacy.com, we've done integrations directly with them. So if you're a 1Password user and you use Privacy.com to generate unique um, kind of one-time credit card or numbers, you can do that directly within 1Password within our web extension. Same for Fastmail. They have a masked email kind of email alias system that... If you're signing up for a website, not only can you create a unique password, but you can use Fastmail to create a unique email address, right? And and that helps you. And it's block spam or just know where spam's coming from. And we build is, that directly into one password, which is cool. Is that something you built in partnership with those services or or was this sort of your team it's like seeing an opportunity to leverage the functionality they already had and and build that into one password. Yeah, they're both both of those examples are built with a partnership, um, and I think that's the only way we could have had that like really deep integration. There are areas where we saw like we want to do unique email addresses, um, but we don't want to run mail servers, right? So we identified a company that had similar privacy values as us, and we approached them and. And they were like, yeah, let's build something. Um, it's also something where, like, as we progress into the future, we want to open that up and make it so that, you know, any email service could potentially build the same thing on top of it. So that's kind of the long goal. Yeah, I mean, kind of kind of another angle to what you were saying about offering, like, more platform type services where where people and, and partners can build against. Um, I, I want to go back to, to where we started, which is just sort of, how much you have seen one password grow in your your time there and obviously you guys have, have had a lot of recent investment you're hiring a lot i'd be really curious to hear sort of how have things changed in in your part of the organization in the five years you've been there and what are you excited about and and what's been sort of more challenging as the company's grown yeah that's a great question um there's a lot that could be unpacked there <laughs> um, for growth in particular, 
I think the, you know, when we were 50 people, I like to say we were engineering led customer service focused, and that really aligned with our basically two teams, right? We had people building the product and we had people kind of doing customer service and we actually overlapped a lot, right? So all developers helped with customer service and we've always had a kind of drive of, you know, making our customers happy. Um, as we've grown, I think one of the big outcomes is we now actually have a sales team. We have a marketing team. We have people that specialize in project management and product management and those kind of things. And of course, I think that builds a higher quality end product, you know, than a bunch of uh, kind of software engineers making some of those decisions. So I think that's what you see when you get kind of a big organizational growth. A great example of this is just what we can offer our our folks internally. Um, so, and you know, when we had one person doing all of HR and all of finance, all of the accounting, we didn't have the programs in place to do as many benefits for employees. And now we do, right? Like, as a as someone who lives in the United States, even though we're a Canadian company, you know, one of the huge benefits of working at One Password is they take care of everything. They take care of your healthcare, 100% paid, vision, dental, all of those things. That didn't exist when I first joined the company. And now I think we've built kind of just a really great place to work, as well as we have a bunch of these organizations that are focused on more specific tasks and, and help us deliver a, a way better product, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And how has the engineering org evolved over that time? You kind of hinted that you were sort of all one team uh, when you started, but how has that sort of changed and grown and become more specialized as, as the team's gotten bigger? Yeah. So engineering wise, I think we're the big change is going from building individual apps, right? So having a couple folks that are building a Windows app to having a, a large foundation cross-platform library. And some of that was organizational and a lot of that was technology decisions. So um, we adopted Rust and we use it to build a ton of the backend for all of our client apps, even in, including uh, on the web. So Rust compiles to WebAssembly. And so the same code that, for example, generates that unique password is actually written once and used everywhere um, across all of our clients and including the web. Um, and to kind of build that out, I, I think one of the big organizational changes is we have the largest one of the largest parts of like engineering is focused on building and maintaining that that cross-platform library i think you know everyone's pretty excited about about rust and and especially the sort of rust to WebAssembly tool chain i think there's a lot of excitement around it but it's also you know still a pretty nascent um technology and and supply chain for delivering software i'm curious What's that experience of like adopting Rust and, and working with WebAssembly extensions been like? Has it been sort of technically challenging? Has it been easy to adopt? What's what's your kind of report from the front? So I think a little bit of history is helpful. Um, we've always had some level of like cross-platform shared code. So what we call the one password brain is a great example. That's the library that's essentially in charge of analyzing pages and computing like how to fill or save information from that page. 
um, we've shared that between uh, you know the web as well as uh, our desktop apps and um, uh, mobile apps and those kind of things. And it's traversed many languages. Um, our infrastructure is written in Go, so we really enjoyed Go, and we initially kind of built some of our initial first take on cross-platform code in Go. Um, at the time, and I, I don't honestly know what the state of affairs is today, I apologize, but at the time, it just it wasn't a great way to go to WebAssembly. Um, I think what we actually shipped some of that code, and I, one of the, the fundamental issues was the uh, memory usage, for example, like it would just allocate a gigabyte of memory for WebAssembly right on uh, initialization, which is definitely a problem uh, for most people. Uh, it's a non-starter for folks on things like Chrome OS at the time. So we were attracted to Rust for a few reasons. One was some of our Windows developers were already using it in the Windows app, and they really were pushing the forefront of at least the WebAssembly tooling. So you could go from some Rust code to WebAssembly, have that packaged into an NPM package, have it like generate TypeScript types, like all of that using um, WASMPack is the name of the uh, the library or the package that kind of does that for you. So we were, we were super attracted to that. Um, and I think Rust in general is a very decent language for writing kind of performant code. It forces you into thinking about memory management and the borrow checker. And to be honest, it's not an easy to go from not worrying about those things to now learning Rust. I think it was a challenge for a lot of our developers internally to kind of make that switch. I myself um, wrote a lot of the early versions of the code. It probably took me like a month before I felt like I was getting anywhere with Rust. And to this day, you know, I don't, I'm not in code every day, but I would not say I'm like a Rust mastermind or anything like that. What we did, and I think, you know, you alluded to some of the investment is we ended up going out and hiring a lot of people that were knowledgeable in this field and bringing them in to help us kind of really fully invest in this big bet, which was adopting um, a new technology. And I think today we've already seen like Rust is way more um, mainstream two years later than when we started using it two years ago. And, and it was similar with Go. We were easier, we were early adopters into Go for our infrastructure. And now Go is just like the common, like everybody uses that. So I think we're seeing a lot of that. I think uh, 1Password, you know, invests a lot into the community. So we invest into individual uh, open source projects that we think could be the future for us, um, as well as like we are a part of the Rust Foundation. So, um, yeah, I, I was going to ask how much of of that sort of evolution of the language is tied to sort of the early adopters giving back to and, and supporting the language community and, and giving it that sort of feeling of momentum, I think matters a lot to developers. I think it does. Um, Rust also seems to have attracted a lot of diversity in developers, which is really awesome to see. I mean, if you've gone to RustConf or attended one of them virtually, you'll see it's it's a very diverse community of people that are very interested in it at the very least. And, and I think that has spawned a lot of the excitement um, when I 
was in the early days of hiring folks to join the team as Rust developers, a lot of people were really just applying because they wanted to work with Rust, right? Like they didn't have any opportunities there yet. So um, I, I, I do think that there's a ton of excitement behind it, but fundamentally it's a really great language too. Um, it's, it's, it's a very modern version of a low level language. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the browser extensions in one password in, in a lot of ways, I think are sort of one of your flagship features. Like the thing that, that I think a lot of people are probably most familiar with is I go to a site and it just automatically fills in my credentials and I don't have to worry about digging them out. Um, I'm curious what sort of goes into, you know, managing the release process and, and life cycle of extensions across all of the different browsers and, and devices that, that you support. Uh, that seems like just from, from my perspective as someone who tries to wrangle browser SDKs day to day, that seems like a really big challenge to deal with extension stores and packaging and testing. Um, how do you sort of manage all that complexity? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, and I will say it's difficult. <laughs> um, so I, I'm glad we're touching upon this because I'm I'm finding myself becoming like a web extensions advocate, I think. I think there's the the underlying platform is becoming a very interesting place to work, if that makes sense. Um, and what I mean by that is when I first joined 1Password, for example, um, I don't know if Firefox had had embraced the new web extensions APIs or if they just had. But essentially, as a little bit of a back history, Chrome started this, like, what we call the web extension API. Um, Firefox ad- adopted it. And two years ago, um, Safari adopted it on macOS. And one year ago, uh, Safari adopted it on iOS. So it's actually a really cool platform because you can build something that is web-based and it will work cross-platform across every major web browser to include iOS on mobile. And I suspect we'll see it on Android here soon as well, right? So you can kind of have desktop and mobile um, now, that being said, the release process is a little challenging. Um, almost every web browser um, on every OS, there's like some little edge cases, don't allow you to just go to a random website and install a browser extension, right? You have to go to the Chrome Web Store or the Firefox add-on gallery or Safari Mac App Store. Or- Probably on balance an okay thing. Right. It is because of the power that web extensions have, right? They they can be a source of like vulnerability if you don't trust the developer, if you don't know what they're doing. And there has been a lot of um, some changes there. Uh, Google's pushing kind of manifest V3, which is an overhaul of the API, uh, underlying APIs, and, and it's going to push for kind of a better permission model among other things. Um, But one of the big, I think one of the big challenges, if anybody's getting into the web extensions game and they want to target every browser, every platform is you have to deal with every major company, right? Every major tech company, you have to, you know, deal with Microsoft's review process, Apple's review process, Chrome, Google's review process and, and uh, Mozilla with Firefox. So I think from, when we decide, hey, we want to launch an extension to when that would be fully published across all the stores is about a solid seven or eight days. 
Um, and that's mostly because Microsoft takes like seven days every time. Um, and so that, that is challenging, especially with a security product, you know, you have, you want to be able to make immediate bug fixes if there are immediate problems. And I think that's one of the larger challenges is the distribution. The upside is all of these things are free. You can, you know, you can go build a web extension today and distribute them through these various channels. You don't really pay anything. You don't have to worry about signing. You don't have to worry about the distribution. So that's the upside. Um, but to your point, one of the important factors of our release pipeline is, you know, testing. So our, our kind of that cross-platform library has you know, unit tests. We do a lot of tests on the actual front-end code. We actually just adopted uh, Playwright as our end-to-end testing framework for the extension. And everything's a little bit harder as an extension than just loading a random website, right? You have to get this into a web browser that loads a, an extension. But luckily, there's tooling out there to do that. So for example, Selenium has a Docker image that you can just run as part of your CI/CD pipeline. And you can programmatically load in an extension and do like full end-to-end testing there. So um, that's definitely an, an important component to our kind of release structure. On top of that, we do the typical things where we do internal testing as well as we have a beta channel and stable channel and all of that like kind of normal stuff. I Yeah, one of the things that was occurring to me as, as you were talking about that was this is in many ways the, the classic problem, right, of balancing quality with speed in a release cycle, but obviously you're also a security focused product. And so that quality and, and trust with your users in the product is is even that much more important than you know your your average web application. Um, is there anything sort of that's really specific to your product or, or really specific to the sort of security and identity use case that's part of your testing workflow? Um I don't, nothing comes to mind. I think, you know, a lot of our security is handled by that cross-platform framework. So we Mm -hmm. do a lot of crypto um, in Rust uh, for like decryption of items and those kind of things. And they're very hardened and tested at the unit level. So um, I don't, can't think of anything specific with regards to like our extensions that I think we would do at an extreme or different than what everyone should fundamentally do when testing code. I think the biggest difference there is when you run a web app on a website, you make a mistake, you can deploy instantly, right? Like you could basically deploy a new version instantly. With an extension, you could have a week of that being out in the wild. So I think that's kind of the the big difference. We have some controls, right? Like since our service is built um, server side, we can potentially, you know, turn off specific APIs for specific clients if we have to, but luckily we haven't had to use anything like that recently. Um, I think the biggest one that comes to mind as like another factor of challenge at least is web browsers update quite frequently as well. Um, And we have some additional security measures in place that other companies probably wouldn't. So a great example of this is when the extension connects to the Mac app, for example, we actually validate the underlying process. So we validate that, yes, this browser was signed by Google, for example. And just a few weeks ago, for example, um, Google changed their certificate. 
So they, they, they updated their certificate and it changed the name. So it failed our validation. So now we have to kind of release new apps to handle that edge case and, and that kind of thing. So, I th- you know, there's we try to test a lot of our stuff in the very early channels of like Chromium, for example. So so you're always sort of testing against the upcoming builds of, of yes. browsers. And that gives you, yes. in addition to just knowing about what are the features and, and APIs coming to the browsers? It gives you sort of an early warning when something just breaks kind of out of nowhere that, and, that maybe and the, we, the browser maker wasn't realizing would be a breaking change for your app. Oh yeah, and we have seen it, right? We have seen bugs as bad as we use index DB as like the backend for the extension. We've seen bugs as bad as like the extension, the browser updates and that entire database just gets wiped out, right? So like there's there are a lot of things that get caught in those early days. Um, to the upside is I think we are large enough that we've built relationships with a lot of the browser manufacturers so we can reach out to them. Um, web extensions also uh, eight months ago or so, st- I, timelines are hard these days, but uh, started a, uh, uh, the W3C started like a web extensions working group, community group. So as a lot of this like transitions happening with the large browsers to new APIs, there's community input and anybody can kind of just go join this community group and, and kind of get input on on some of the things they need and don't need. And we actually, I have a developer on my team who's had some recent success there. Um, and it was pretty awesome to see like his proposal mentioned in like Safari's release notes uh, or uh, technically it was WebKit's release notes, right? So... Yeah, this this actually touches on on something I had sort of written down that I I wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, how how do those like relationships with the the browser makers and and the web standards community generally get built? Like, is that having developers on your team who who have connections to those organizations? Is that sort of just putting yourself you know, into the the channels and the spaces where people are, are having those conversations? Like, how do you go from being somebody uh, just consuming web APIs to actually participating in the dialogue about building them and, and how those systems are evolving? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both, really. Um, you know, I think it starts with getting involved in those spaces, which isn't as easy as other things, right? Like Rust, you can just go join a Discord and get a part of the community and those kind of things. Um, when you're dealing with web browsers, they're primarily put out by, you know, Google, Microsoft, and uh, Apple, Mozilla. You know, these are large companies, very large companies that have their own timelines and timetables. And so you have to really kind of continue the conversation, um, pick up where, it, you know, it, it get involved in every event that you can. So WWDC is a great one uh, for Apple. Um, you know, they now do the kind of sessions and they'll have like a web extensions one. And you'll go meet the handful of engineers that uh, kind of work on, Safari web extensions, not a large team over there. Like we actually probably employ more people consuming the APIs than all of the major tech companies employ like building them, right? So once you know that that dynamic exists, I think you have to like, like all things, it's a little bit of, I I see some of the channels just blow up with people irate that, oh, why have you broken my extension and all of these things and just like, just getting super toxic. But you really have to approach it from a professional mentality, let them know, like, from your perspective, 
how these things are affecting you and your product and, and your users. And, and as a security product, I think we've been able to push things in certain directions based on, look, if this changes, we can actually bring meaningful security benefits to our user base, right? Um, and, you know, a lot of the engineers are receptive to that. Um, but outside of like jumping into the communities, which is, you know, oftentimes bug trackers, right? Like that's one of the, the points of communication is through a bug tracker. Um, but, you know, WebKit uh, or, or Chromium, they're open source. Like one of our developers commits patches. And, you know, once you commit a patch to Chromium, you get into their Slack, you can start having a lot of more kind of involvement in that community. So it just takes a ton of effort from your side. And I'm not sure that like an indie developer could probably commit to that. Um, but I think when you have a larger organization that relies on this fundamental uh, platform, it's worthwhile identifying people on your team that can kind of build those relationships and pursue them. Another thing that I've been really um, excited to see more features around and and one password building more things into is the sort of command line or, or developer focused use case. Um, I know there's there's some stuff with managing secrets in, in Kubernetes. There's much, like you guys recently shipped much better support for um, SSH through 1Password. Um, I'm curious if you have any more to say on like, you know, what your vision is for how 1Password fits into the workflow for, you know, developers and, and software engineers in general uh, in the future. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, we have a heck of a vision, um, for sure. Um, you know, we are developers ourselves, right? Like we have a ton of developers internally. We believe, you know, we use our product internally. So we're always looking for opportunities to um, make fundamental changes to the product to make our own workflows better, as well as, you know, the entire developer community. I think as part of the interesting 1Password story, which we didn't go into too much depth on, but like we've been around for over 15 years um, and only recently are we this large company, right? Like we were a very small company focused on kind of the product and, and the use cases there. Now that we're a larger organization, we have a team dedicated to filling that like developer persona. Um, and so recently we've launched some pretty incredible features um, from the browser side. You can go to a website like GitHub and generate and fill an SSH key, you know, directly onto GitHub and it'll save it into one password. Um, and then within the desktop app, there's actually an SSH agent. So you can, you no longer have to keep your private keys like in a .SSH folder, make sure your uh, change mod correctly. And if someone has access to your user space, they'll immediately have access to your SSH keys. No, now they can all live in one password and you can access it directly from the command line. Um, and there's a couple other like really cool things in the pipeline that I can't talk about, but essentially like that, our vision is to solve a lot of these like pain points that I think nobody else is attacking. And being that we have these integration points on the desktop, in the browser, we're a trusted place for all of your secrets, we can solve a lot of those problems. Do you find that having been sort of, I guess, for, for lack of a better word, a, a consumer solution so long and having built trust with people as individuals, that that translates to 
you know, trust in, in you as a vendor that they want to sort of bring you to work and bring you to their, you know, part of their product security posture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that was our entire like early days growth history for when we launched a service and we started having um, business clients. It was all word of mouth, bottom ups growth. And I think the d- developer initiatives also translate into that, right? Like if you're a if you're a developer and you're already using one password and you join an organization and it makes your workflow better, like yeah, that's going to be a selling point for you to recommend using our solution versus one of the competitors. Um, so it all kind of ties together, but fundamentally, we still believe that if you build a really good product, like the people will come. Um, and a lot of that is, let's be honest, like your the technical people within an organization have a lot of say over what products, uh, enterprise type products the company adopts. If It's one of the reasons why, um, you know, when we migrated to a cross-platform desktop app uh, built on Electron, uh, that made it so that we had a desktop app on Linux, right? We weren't going to build like a GTK app. We could not have the business justification for doing that. But now that we're on Linux, even if that's obviously kind of the smallest of the user bases, it fits a lot of that need for, you know, DevOps people who use Linux at their company can now recommend 1Password where previously they couldn't. So there's a lot of value there for those things. Yeah. Uh, and I thought we might we might end with sort of a really kind of fun big picture question, which is um, 1Password, obviously best known as, as a password manager, but I think over the past year, two years, passwords have been getting a lot of hate in the sort of um, online and, and security communities of like, you know, being hard to remember, being, you know, the kinds of things you have to keep in a password manager. And there's been a lot of sort of emphasis on alternate methods of identity and, and authentication. And I'm curious, you know, what's the future of passwords, password managers, digital identity um, in your view? Like, what are we going to be doing in 10 years? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. Passwords are terrible. I think we all know that. Uh, the concept of like, oh, change your password every six six weeks or 30 days or whatever the security that NIST was putting out, was it's just terrible. It's, it's always been terrible. Um, that being said, they're not going anywhere, right? Like there's still going to be places where username and password just kind of exist forever. Um, and... So we actually have, as part of our Series C fund, uh, funding round, we talked about this a lot with investors, and we actually created a website. It's uh, future.onepassword.com. And one of the headlining, it's pretty abstract, but one of the headlining features of like what we're working on is something that we're calling universal sign-on. And that is basically, we as are uh, like positioned to be this really good third-party aggregate, right? We don't we're not Apple, so we don't have sign in with Apple. We're not Google. We're not Microsoft. We work everywhere, and we want to work with every kind of form of uh, of authentication. So one of the big ones that I think you'll see um, us attacking is the, can your password manager start remembering what kind of forms of social login do you use, right? So do you use login with Twitter? Do you use login with Google? Um, it's actually kind of a hard problem for the user because you end up on this login page and you have to like have the cognitive overload of remembering uh 
did I use my Google account or did I use my Twitter account? And you know what ends up happening? You end up with like three different accounts with three different login providers. Um, and it's it's terrible, right? It, I think I think single sign-on was something that we thought was going to be awesome. And now so many people got into that space that it's, it's kind of terrible. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we're not in that space. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to build a way for one password to track all of this for you to know that like, Hey, if I close down this Google account, which services are, am am I going to lose access to? Um, And on top of that, of course you have things like U2F, you have email based kind of login. There's all sorts of different um, methods nowadays for authentication. And fundamentally, I think where we're well positioned is essentially remembering for the users all of those methods and how you authenticate with your various services and still having like the one place you can go to know if you have an account somewhere to click a button and go and and authenticate with that account. And I think that's essentially the answer to your question. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I want to live in that world. Uh, Awesome. Anything else you'd like to point our listeners to where can they find you online? Um. So there, one topic we didn't cover that I'll cover real quickly, just because oh, this right. is a web web developer focused podcast, and um, I do want to mention that um, one of the things web developers can do for every password manager, not just one password, is start building forms that are password friendly, like password manager friendly. And the very easy way to do that is go dig into the HTML autofill spec and specifically the autocomplete. Um, HTML attribute and just evaluate that spec. Go look at your website and see if uh, if you're kind of meeting it. Because once you do that, you're going to actually make your users have a much better experience for their password managers and generating passwords, filling them. And it goes way more in depth than I think most people know. So for example, you know, TOTP, there is a autocomplete attribute for one-time code. Um, even address fields, you can div- divide it up between shipping and billing. If you go make this like fundamental little change, you'll make your website a little bit more accessible, but you'll also make it like password manager friendly. So that's my little tidbit for the web developer audience. Um, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Firebuyer. It's F-I-R-E-B-E-Y-E-R. I do talk about kind of one password things when you know we have launches. I also just post random pictures like I'm working on our 30 foot airstream that we're moving into. So it's not necessarily the best source of all developer knowledge. It's more kind of a little bit of a picture into my life. Um, of course, onepassword.com, you can find a ton there. We're doing webinars now, security focused stuff. I would advocate you sign up there. We're also hiring a ton more people. So if you're looking to get into this field, uh, please reach out to us. We have a jobs page on there. We have a ton of positions. Um, we are a remote first company. So if you kind of live in one of the entities where we can employ people, you have a shot at having a job with us. So. Awesome. I don't know if you're the first person to point our audience at a web specification uh, <laughs> in this section, but I love it. Uh, yeah. Andrew, thanks so much for, for being on the pod with us. Really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, me as well. It uh, I like kind of the topics that we covered. I could talk for days about organizational, about password managers. There's just, there's a ton. So I, I do enjoy it. So thank you very much for having me. Awesome. We'll see you online. 
Thanks for listening to Pod Rocket. You can find us at Pod Rocket Pod on Twitter, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks.